Our scripture reading this morning is taken uh, from Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read about 19 verses from verses 1 uh, through verse 19. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, and that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that the words of of my mouth uh, and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you. May we encounter you in your word this morning and leave here changed as a result. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we mentioned uh, earlier, our kids are all getting ready to go back to school this week, and uh, no doubt, uh, maybe tomorrow they will start sitting in classrooms and meeting teachers and getting oriented to all the new surroundings that they'll be a part of for the next year. And, and often that first day is all about learning rules and uh, procedures, being oriented to things, and learning about expectations. And teachers will encourage their students to follow these rules so that their classrooms will function well and so that their students can flourish in the learning environment. And really, at their best, this is what rules do for us. They are intended to help us as people be well and to flourish in whatever environment that we are a part of. If you've been with us this, mor- this, uh, this summer, you'll know that we've been looking at the Ten Commandments, and we've seen how they are a list of rules that are given to us by God himself. In many ways, they reveal to all of us just how much we fall short of what God expects from each one of us. Because of that, they end up driving us to Jesus because there is no other way that we could perfectly keep these rules or merit or earn God's favor. And once they drive us to Christ and we embrace him for our rescue, God then brings us back to these laws 
He brings us back to them as a means by which we can express our thankfulness and our gratitude to God. They are a grateful response from one who has been rescued by God's grace. But what we've also seen is they are intended to be, in many ways, a display. That when followed, God's people are put on display for all the world to see. Their uniqueness is left to shine. The uniqueness of what a life lived in relationship with Jesus Christ really looks like. So really they are intended to help us figure out how to flourish in our relationship with God, but also in our relationship with others. If you've been with us, you know that we've seen that these commandments are, they really seem kind of simple and straightforward at first, but then as we open up the hood and really peer deeply into them, we realize their implications are much more far-reaching than we originally realized. And that's because they don't just speak to our behavior. They speak to the condition and the, the disposition of our hearts in many ways. They speak about our thoughts and about uh, our will and about our choices and about our emotions. And then when we get to this commandment, we, were, we learn this week that they also speak to our desires. See, the tenth, commandment, the tenth commandment says this. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your servants, your possessions, their oxes, their donkeys, all those things, in effect saying, you shall not covet anything at all. See, coveting in its essence is a desire. It's actually a disordered desire that lusts after people's possessions and their status and their well-being. And what happens is this covenant is in many, or this coveting is in many ways the starting point. It's the starting point that leads to all other behaviors in many ways that break the other commandments, like adultery and Sabbath-keeping and murder and stealing. Because this, ha- this commandment, maybe perhaps uniquely, speaks directly to the heart and the desires that often lie behind our behaviors. It really speaks initially about the powerful role that desires play in all of our hearts. You see, we're complex people. We're complex creations by God. We are pain and joy. We are mind. We are heart. We are soul, will, and desires all bottled up in these physical bodies. And what it tells us is that our desires really are the thing that aims and steers this bundle of complexity that we call us. We often like to think that we are controlled by our reason and by our intellect. But more often than not, our behaviors are determined or fueled by our strongest desires. Think about it this way. Imagine that I made the decision that I wanted to to lose some weight and uh, uh, maybe I wanted to look better, something along, fit my clothes better, something like that. So I decided to go on a diet and uh, it's because that's a really strong desire of me to lose weight. And then after dinner, my wife comes up and, and offers me a huge bowl of ice cream, which is a particular weakness of mine, right? And, uh, and in that moment, what I decide to do is I choose to eat that ice cream. Well, what does that say about my desires? Well, it says that Yes, my desire to lose weight may be very strong, but my desire for ice cream, at least in that moment, is the strongest of desires that play in my heart. 
And see, this is especially true about the way we think about time and the way we manage it. Because if something matches our desires, we will make time for it. In fact, often when people say, um, I'm too busy to do this or do that, what we really are saying is my desires are too weak to make that thing actually happen. I can remember back when I was young, they had this thing called Ticketmaster, and I think Ticketmaster still exists, but it's now only online. But Ticketmaster used to be a place you had to go to. It was often in the Macy's or the Heck Company or something like that, and you had to go there and buy tickets to concerts. And uh, I, we would do this. We would sometimes get up early and, and go buy tickets to concerts we wanted to go to. And what I often found is I would have lots of friends that could never show up to school on time, They could never show up to class or work on time, but darned if they didn't camp out the night before and get up at 4 a.m. to be in that line so that they could get those tickets. Well, why did they do that? Because it was the strongest desire of their hearts. You see, our strongest desires are the things that drive us. They, more often than not, drive our habits, they drive our behaviors, and many times they are a mirror that reflects back to us the things that we truly value. You see, God created us this way. He created us to be desiring beings. Think back to the, to the Garden of Eden when God fashioned Eve and God brought Eve to Adam. Don't you think there was a little bit of desiring that was going on in Adam's heart at that moment? And in that moment, it was a beautiful and good thing. The scriptures in Proverbs 13 said, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Desires, when they are fulfilled, bring life. There are some some Eastern worldviews and traditions that are out there that believe the opposite. Many worldviews teach that the key to life is to try to move past desire or to not really desire anything at all. And in some ways, there's branches of Christianity that have adopted this as well. They think part of being spiritual is to have some sort of Victorian stoicism that never really desires or feels anything at all. But the scriptures say something very different. The scriptures speak of desire as an integral and important part of who we are as people. But what the scriptures also tell us is that there has been a disordering of those desires that God created us with. You see, when sin entered the world, our desires changed. They became bent into themselves. We were created with one chief desire, and that chief desire from the beginning was to be for God and God alone. But when sin entered the world, our chief desire was disordered and it became bent in on ourselves. It turned selfish. And that's why Augustine said that we now focus on lesser things that end up interrupting our desires for God. He calls those things idols. And that really is the essence of what this commandment is all about. The 10th commandment does not forbid desire. It's a good thing. But what it does is it forbids disordered desires. And that looks like focusing on what others have, even to the point 
where we are often plotting on how to acquire those things for ourselves. These desires may not be something that can be observed by others, but they are the secret and hidden thoughts on display that often only God can see. And they have their byproducts. The byproducts of coveting are things like envy and perpetual, perpetual discontent and greed. You see, when, when coveting grips our hearts, we live in this state of perpetual discontent. The focus of our hearts always becomes on what others have rather than the good gifts that have been given to us by God. How come my coworker got that promotion? I deserve that promotion. I work twice as hard as my neighbor does, and yet that neighbor has a bigger house than I do. That seems really unfair. Why is it that everybody else seems to have a fulfilling relationship, and why don't I have that kind of relationship? How come her husband spoils her with Mediterranean vacations and my husband can barely remember when my birthday is? Maybe that's a little more valid than something else. But you see what I mean by this. The discontent becomes perpetual. It winds up building upon itself. There's always going to be someone with a bigger house, with a better job, with a bigger car, and with a more understanding spouse. There just is simply no end to all of it. And we can get lost in that echo chamber and get lost in perpetual discontent. That discontent fixes itself on envy and on greed, and we become riddled with all sorts of anxieties because we always need to be in perpetual motion just to keep up and to get ahead. David Gardner, Garland, who's a, a commentator, wrote this. He said, Greed refers to the haughty and ruthless belief that everything, including other persons, exists for our own personal amusement and purposes. Essentially, it turns our desires into idols. It's the overwhelming desire to possess more and more things, to run roughshod over other persons to get them. It stands opposed to the willingness to give to others regardless of the cost of self. Greed can crave after persons and is never satiated by its conquests, but always lusts for more. When we covet, we cannot eventually even love our neighbors. Instead, all we want to do is get ahead of them. And we can get lost in this cycle of discontent and coveting to such a degree that it brings our own ruin. So what do we do? How do we interrupt these disordered desires? Well, at the end of the day, we need an intervention. In many ways, a very holy, sometimes painful, but always gracious intervention. We need God to enter into our lives and to reorient our desires. We need the, the reorientation of those desires. I can remember long enough, I've been alive long enough to remember when Apple didn't rule the world. 
And I, I remember when computers, uh, the, the most popular computers out there were the Microsoft computers. I'm going to say all this wrong because I'm not a computer person. The most popular computers out there were the Microsoft computers, and I believe the operating system was this thing called Windows. It may still exist today. But I can remember everybody got used to working with Windows, and then they came, Microsoft, in their wisdom, came out with something called Vista. And Vista changed the whole operating system so that when everybody updated, they didn't know what to do. People freaked out because they didn't know how to use their computers anymore because everything was different. It was a a different operating system that they had to function on. Well, friends, in many ways, this is what the gospel does to our hearts. It is a brand new operating system that enters into our hearts and into our lives. And the gospel doesn't remove desires. Instead, what it does is it reorients them. It doesn't diminish our desires. Instead, we find that it builds and strengthens and re-aims them in the right direction. C.S. Lewis, one of his famous quotes, says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased." See, God made us into desiring beings. He made us so that our chief desire is ultimately for Him. And when God reorients our desires, He reorients our hearts, and our heart's chief longing instead becomes Him and pleasing Him with our lives. In effect, He restores our desires to the way they were designed to function. Psalm 42 says this, beautiful imagery. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This is the beauty of reoriented desires. And if the product of disordered desires is is lack of contentment and envy and greed, then the product of reoriented desires is a heart at peace. It's a heart that's content, and it's a heart that is full of charity. You see, our hearts become settled and fulfilled in the good gifts that God has given us. Instead of fixating on what others have, we're overwhelmed with gratitude for the good gifts that God has given us. And instead of stepping on our neighbors to get ahead, we are instead freed up to love them in selfless charity. Last thing we really see in this passage, ultimately, is the endurance of desire. And we see it most beautifully in the person of Jesus Christ himself. Think about it this way. Sometimes if a desire is strong enough, you and I are often willing to make sacrifices to fulfill those desires. If a desire really captures our heart, we're often willing to even suffer and endure 
to have those desires fulfilled. Think about the college student that suffers and endures through rigorous classes in order to eventually obtain a degree. Think about an athlete who endures through early mornings and difficult workouts in order to beat their body into shape. Think about politicians and policy workers that endure through partisanship in order to see things change. Think about parents who endure through diaper changes and elementary school temper tantrums and middle school emotions in order to raise their kids. You see, if our desires are strong enough, we will endure and suffer through just about anything. And what I'm reminded of is what it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that calls us beautifully to look to Christ the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. You see, what this passage tells us is that God has desires too. And it was his desire to redeem or to buy back a people who had rejected, who had despised, and who had shamed him. It was his desire to pour out incredible great grace on those whom he had chosen. And because that was his great desire, he chose to become flesh. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ, he lived among us. He suffered greatly to the point of being executed on a cross, and he did it because he desired you. Before you ever desired him, he reached into time and into space. He endured. He suffered for you. There was a Lutheran pastor not long ago that told a story that described a woman who walked 700 miles as a refugee to escape a violent war. And when she was finally able to cross a national boundary out of the war zone that she had traveled from, there was a great celebration. But as the story goes, it tells the fact that when she did this 700-mile journey, she was accompanied by an eight-year-old little girl who walked beside her the entire time of her journey. For 700 miles, the child held her hand as tightly as she could. And when they reached safety, the little girl finally felt like she can loosen her grip on this woman. And the woman looked at her hand after she let go of the grip and discovered that it was raw and bloody with an open wound because the little girl had held on so tightly in fear along the journey. Friends, the reality is that the things that we lust after can never hold our hands and bring us to safety. But our Savior can. His hands and his feet were bloodied. His side and his head were pierced so that he could lead you and I to safety. Psalm 73 says this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray.